Welcome to the Sunday School lesson from Jolton Church of the Nazarene. My name is John Mills, and I'm glad that we can have this time together. We are continuing our lessons from the book of Romans. Now, these lessons come from the Nazarene Adult Quarterly for the spring quarter of 2021, and today we're using the lesson from March 21st, God's Righteous Judgment. And our text is going to come from the second chapter of Romans. But before we get into the lesson, let's begin with a word of prayer. I want us to pray together Paul's prayer for the Philippians, the one found in Philippians chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Paul tells them, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Amen. During this past winter, many politicians got into trouble for how they managed this COVID crisis. Denver's mayor urged everyone to stay home for Thanksgiving to keep from spreading the virus, but then flew to Mississippi to have Thanksgiving with family. California's governor imposed tough regulations on restaurants and then was discovered to be eating out with lobbyists, and none of them were wearing masks. The governor of Mississippi limited the number of people at events and then held not one but three separate Christmas parties, which all exceeded the limits. When news of these things broke, each of the politicians faced a firestorm of criticism. People felt they were being hypocritical. They were telling their voters to do one thing while they did another. Now, this is not reserved to politicians. All of us, if we're honest, we have to admit we have some of the hypocrite in us. Paul recognized this tendency that we have to see sin in other people but to miss it in ourselves. His message to the Romans in chapter 1 was, God's wrath is coming to the ungodly. His message in chapter 2 is, these ungodly, it's not just those people out there. The ungodly includes anyone who sins against God. He wanted those listening to him to know they were not immune to God's wrath. This is important because Paul knew as long as the Romans were thinking that it was those people who were under wrath, those people who needed rescuing, they would never really value the gospel. The tendency is to think it's those out there, they are the ones who truly need the gospel. When Jesus described the kingdom of heaven, he describes it as the most valuable, the most precious thing that we can imagine. He talks in two different parables. In the first parable, he compares the kingdom of heaven to a treasure hidden in a field. When a man discovers this treasure, he joyfully sells all that he has to buy the field with the treasure. In the second parable, Jesus tells, the kingdom of heaven is described as a pearl, a pearl of such immense value. It's priceless. And when a man discovers it, he sells everything he has so that he can buy this one exquisite pearl. 
In both of these parables, the focus is on obtaining something of such value that we willfully, that we joyfully give up everything else in order to get this one thing. Do we in the church today, do we really see the gospel in these terms? Is the good news of the kingdom so valuable to us that we joyfully sacrifice everything in order to get this? Now, we welcome the gospel as the answer to our sin problem, to putting us back into a right relationship with God, and especially to bring us out from under the judgment of sin. But do we truly appreciate the transforming power of the gospel? Or are we content to have a lukewarm relationship where our lives continue in the same old way while we wait for heaven? The full gospel is a gospel of holiness. God not only wants to save us from our sins, God wants to transform us into his likeness. Do we truly view this transformation as a pearl of great price? It's only when we grasp the full extent of our need for God that the gospel will then become precious to us. As long as we think of ourselves as pretty good, we are content to stay the way that we are. Our text today comes from Romans chapter 2, and we're going to be looking at the first 16 verses. Now, this letter to the Romans, Paul is presenting his gospel, and this is a gospel that he's given his life for. Paul tells the Galatian people, I bear in my body the marks of Christ. And then, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he goes through a very specific list of what this meant. It meant he had been beaten with rods, he had been whipped numerous times, put in prison, He'd been stoned. He'd been left for dead. He was shipwrecked. Paul goes on to describe his life by saying, I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst, and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. This gospel was so valuable to Paul. He willingly, joyfully suffered all of these things because he knew he was part of something that had eternal consequences. Now, Paul knows that the first response to the gospel he preaches is to consider it blasphemous or foolishness. It's only when man realizes the seriousness of his situation, when man realizes the reality of being without God, when they see their desperate need, it's only then that they can see the gospel for what it is, this pearl of great price, the treasure hidden in the field. In chapter 1 of Romans, Paul describes the problem. Man is utterly wicked as a consequence of rejecting God in order to worship idols. And Paul goes on to give a whole laundry list of evils that have come about because man has chosen to live apart from God. And there's no way to deny this. The evilness of our world is something we can readily see. 
Paul knows, however, our tendency is to recognize the evil in everyone else, but to be blind to the evil that may be inside us. And so Paul spends chapter 2 driving home this point. God's judgment is not just on them, those people, the ones out there. Paul systematically takes on the reasons why we might think that God's judgment is for others and not for us. First, he says, we mistake God's weakness or we mistake God's long-suffering, God's mercy. We mistake that for weakness. Because God hasn't judged us yet, we believe he doesn't really mean it when he tells us judgment is on the way. Secondly, we see ourselves as special. We don't really see ourselves as those deserving God's judgment. And then Paul brings out the point that we have the idea that being right with God ultimately comes down to what we know rather than what we do. Now, in part one, Paul tells us we have the idea that we will escape God's judgment because we mistake God's long-suffering, God's patience for weakness. We get the idea, well, we must not be all that bad or God would have punished us already. Because God hasn't punished us yet, he doesn't really mean it when he condemns us. Paul begins this chapter of Romans, chapter 2. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Now, we feel like we are going to escape God's wrath because we don't consider our sins to be real sins. Our sins are not like the sins the other fellow is committing. We recognize the wrong, the evil in their actions. We don't think of what we do as actually the same thing. You know, it's interesting. Almost all of us break laws on a regular basis, but we don't really consider ourselves criminals. For example, all of us know it's against the law to speed. But if we get into a situation where we need to be somewhere quickly, if we feel like it's important enough, most of us speed, even though we know it's illegal to do so. We know we're not supposed to be using our cell phones while we drive. But again, if we get in a situation where, oh, I really need to do this, most of us go ahead and do it. Now, in the same way, many in the church will admit that the things we do are things the Bible really has forbidden us to do. But we don't really consider ourselves to be sinners when we do this. Philippians 2.14 says, Do everything without complaining or arguing. In Ephesians 4.29 we read, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. There are other biblical commands about controlling our tongues, avoiding gossip, not slandering our neighbor. So we look at all of these and we know they're forbidden by the Bible. 
And yet we know that we do partake of these things, but we don't really consider ourselves as sinners. We like to classify sins. We split them up into those that are really bad and those that, well, they aren't quite so bad. We set up a hierarchy. The sins that we most likely commit, we usually place these at the bottom. And we do this so that we can compare ourselves favorably with others. This allows us to always find someone who's worse than we are. It's interesting, even in our prisons, where everyone is there for committing some kind of crime, there's still a hierarchy of offenses. Some offenses are seen as especially bad. These, most of the time, are sexual offenses, especially things like a child molestation. And so, you know, a criminal prides himself. Well, I may be uh, a thief. I may have stolen. I may have hurt people. I may have done whatever, but at least I'm not a child molester. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Paul warns us that those who measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are not wise. Now, we often think we get by with our sins because we see the actions of others as intentional. We don't see them as having an excuse, but we find a rationalization for our behavior. We find some kind of extenuating circumstances that somehow justify what we do. Basically, we look for ways to separate ourselves from those that we consider to be real sinners. Now, when we sin and there's no immediate judgment, we assume, well, God doesn't really see this as sin either. Yes, we know that God has to be against sin. That's really what he's all about. But we get the idea, well, God, God doesn't really mean it when he condemns our pet sins. We don't realize there's often a time lag, a delay between when we commit the sin and when we see the consequences for the sin. It can take a while for our sins to come home to roost, but the Bible tells us, don't be fooled. We will reap what we sow. In fact, we can begin to think that if things are working out for us, if we are prospering, this is a sign that we actually have God's blessing, that God approves of us. This was one of the big problems of the Jewish people. Their theology often taught that having material prosperity, this was a sign of God's blessing, God's approval. We can take the same attitude today. You know, I think of how we often will use Facebook and we will list on there all of the blessings that we enjoy, all of the, the good things that are happening for us. And we talk about how God has blessed us. Really, it's often a way of bragging, but it carries with it somehow this idea that we deserve these blessings, that God approves of us because he's allowing us to have these things. And so if we're not careful, we kind of assume that we've entered into a, a de facto agreement with God where we're living our lives basically doing good most of the time, and in return, God is blessing us. Now, when we react in this way, when we refuse to see what we do as truly sins, Paul tells us we are showing contempt for the riches of God's mercy. 
Now, one way we show contempt in this is we see God's grace as reflecting our value rather than reflecting God himself. We somehow get the idea that grace is a result of who we are, that we have grace because we're basically pretty good people, okay, with a few flaws here and there. We also show contempt because we're setting up our values and our priorities rather than God's values. Now, if we're not careful, we can enshrine middle-class American values. Uh, We can set those up as if they were God's values. The status quo, this may become more important to us than pursuing what God has told us to do. The American values of patriotism uh, or maybe nationalism, you know, our characteristics of individualism, consumerism, These are American, but they're not necessarily Christian. And so we have to be careful that we don't show contempt for God by assuming that God values and God has the same priorities that we do. And we show contempt when we remain unchanged, when we remain in our sins. And this often applies to us, especially in the church. We want to be saved. We want to make it to heaven. We don't really want to give up all of our pet sins. We don't really want to be transformed. And so Paul warns them, God's judgment is based on truth. For God to be true, he cannot treat our sins with a wink and a nod while he judges the sins of others. He can't overlook them, pretend that he doesn't see them. So if we truly grasp this, that God's judgment is based on truth, then we become a repentant people. Now, it's obvious that those who are not saved, that they need to repent. But it may not be obvious that we in the church, we need to live a lifestyle of repentance. We need to live as repentant people. You know, we need to constantly be aware of when God is calling upon us to change our ways. And this is really the essence of repent. It's to make an about face. It's to stop doing, uh, being whatever we are and to start doing what God wants us to do. So even as Christians, we often find ourselves needing to repent. Now, maybe it's because we've been rationalizing our conduct and God pricks our conscience. Maybe it's we never realized what we were doing was a sin. As we grow in grace, we mature. And there are things that we never thought of that God brings to light and shows us this is a sin. This is against what uh, I stand for. It's interesting uh, when we look back to John Wesley, which we see as you know, kind of the founder of, of our holiness movement. John Wesley certainly stressed the idea that we are to live above sin. As Christians, we don't just continue the same old lifestyle of sin. And yet, John Wesley was one very much in favor of this repenting process for Christians themselves. When he would have his groups of of Methodists meet together, they would meet in these small groups called bands. One of the things they would do at each meeting, they would ask each other a series of questions. Questions that started with, 
What sins have you committed since our last meeting? And so Wesley knew that we needed to be aware of the possibility of sin. We needed to repent when these sins came to our attention. And he knew that we often did not face the truth about our, our uh, actions. In addition to asking what sins have you committed, he wanted them to go deeper. They were also to ask, Have you thought, said, done anything that you're unsure of, that you're not sure whether it's a sin or not? And then he gets to the point of the matter when he had them ask each other, Have you done anything that you would like to keep a secret? Because Wesley knew if we're doing things that we don't want others to know about, the chances are those are sins in our lives that need to be gotten rid of. And so, As Christians, as part of the church, we need to be a repentant people. Now, in part two, Paul talks to the Romans, and he tells them, you think you're getting by with your sin, that uh, you don't, don't need to repent, because somehow you believe you have a special relationship with God, that God is overlooking what you've done because of who you are. Paul writes to them, starting in verse 5, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when His righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking, And who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. So Paul warns us, our stubbornness, our unrepentant heart, These are causing us to rack up God's wrath. God's righteousness will demand that He judge us by what we have done. The foundation of God's righteousness, the foundation of God's righteous judgment is the last sentence that we read. God does not show favoritism. Now, we recognize man's justice is often flawed. Justice often depends upon who is being judged Who is doing the judging? We know that far too often there's one set of laws for the wealthy, the educated, those in the majority, while there's another set of laws for the poor, uh, those in the lower classes, the minorities. While we denounce this and we say that we want everyone to be treated the same, a lot of us secretly feel that, well, we deserve to be given a break. We deserve special treatment. But when we hold this attitude, we are dishonoring God because we are denigrating God's holiness, His righteousness. We are making God into a hypocrite. Now, this attitude of entitlement, somehow I deserve special treatment because of who I am, This is an attitude of arrogance, an attitude of pride, and it does a lot of damage to us as individuals and to the church as an institution. You know, when the world sees us displaying this entitlement, 
when they see us express this feeling that we deserve God's blessing, even when we are being disobedient, it creates a lot of anger on their part. They become disgusted with us as the church. We actually bring Christ's name into disrepute. And also, when we have this, this attitude of entitlement, we don't become transformed. We remain stuck in the same situations. Now, we want to divide people into two groups. Those people, the ones who are under God's judgment, those wicked, vile, unrighteous people of the world, and then a separate group of ourselves. And this can depend whether we are in or out of the church, but, you know, these are the ones, the people who are basically good and decent, hardworking, you know. Yes, we may sin a little, but we're not really like those other people. Paul tells us here that God does divide into two groups, but God uses very different criteria from what we may use. God divides these into, first, the group of those who seek glory, honor, and immortality. And when we see this, it sounds kind of selfish, but we have to realize Paul is talking about those seeking God's glory, those seeking God's honor. And this really is the essence of holiness. To be holy is to be like Christ, is to be Christ-like. Those who are self-seeking, this is the other group. They don't seek God's glory, God's honor, but they seek their own. It's a self-centeredness where they seek what benefits them. And this is the essence of sin, the carnal nature. It's seeking our own glory rather than God's glory. Now, uh, for these two groups, we, we can see that to be Christ-like, we have to seek the Father's glory. Jesus made it plain. He was on earth to do the will of the Father, to bring glory to the Father by being completely obedient and submissive. John 6, 38, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. So, if we are going to be a holy people, if we are going to be a Christ-like people, we have to be those who seek God's glory and not our own. Now, these two groups are very different, and their judgment is different as well. Those who seek their own glory, those who reject the truth and follow evil, for them... Paul promises wrath, anger, trouble, distress. Paul wants it to be very clear. When we seek our own glory, this naturally results in the rejection of truth and in following evil. Romans 8, 7 tells us, The mind governed by the flesh, in other words, the mind that's seeking its own glory, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Paul also wants us to understand, when we follow evil, the result is trouble and distress. God's righteous judgment requires that his creation, his universe, be shaped along moral principles. It's endowed with a moral authority. So, when we disregard God's moral laws, we suffer the consequences. But, those who seek God's glory will receive glory, honor, and peace. In other words, eternal life. It's by seeking God's will 
not our will, that we gain life. Now, we may not put it into words. We may not say it out loud. But all of us struggle with the question of what makes life worthwhile? What is a successful life? What's the point of life? And we answer it in a lot of different ways. You know, we may pursue money, material possessions. Maybe we pursue fame and, and becoming a celebrity. Or maybe it, it's social class status. You know, maybe it's pleasure and enjoying life to the full. But Jesus told us, John 10, 10, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. And so Jesus answers, real life, real life is found only in him, through him. And it's this matter of seeking the glory of God and not our own glory. Now, Paul wraps this chapter up by saying, we think we will escape God's judgment, even if we do sin, because somehow we believe that knowing about God is the same as knowing God himself. But Paul wants his readers to know we will be judged by the condition of our hearts, not by the knowledge in our head. Sin is a heart problem. It's not a head problem. It's not caused by what we know. It's not fixed by what we know. Starting with verse 12, Paul writes, All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. This will take place on the day when God judges people's secrets through Jesus Christ, as my gospel declares. Now, for the evangelical church, beginning back around the 1950s or so, there, there was a push to get people to make a decision for Christ. And so our focus became getting people to make a public declaration of belief. We call this, you know, accepting Christ as your Savior. And we were successful. Many people responded. In fact, in our part of the country, in the Bible Belt, I would say most people have probably done this at some point in their life. And there's nothing wrong with this. Making a personal decision for Christ is important. But the problem becomes when this is the sum total of the definition of salvation, when this becomes all of what it means to be saved. People come forward, they make their declaration, they pray the sinner's prayer, and then they resume their old lives. Nothing changes except they've checked that item off their list. Now they're saved. They're ready for heaven. And this idea settled into the church that what's most important is what we've decided with our heads, whether we've decided the gospel is correct and we are going to admit that it's correct. Have we made a decision to accept Christ? Becoming a Christian, becoming a disciple of Christ, began to be about what we knew in our heads rather than what was going on in our hearts. And Paul wants them to understand 
This is not the case. Being right with God, getting back into a right relationship with God, it's not a matter of what we know, what we don't know. It's a matter of whether we are obedient or not. Sin and the judgment it brings, this is a result of disobedience. It's not whether we know the law, whether we don't know the law. In uh, Romans 1, Paul tells us, The wicked knew God, but they would not glorify Him as God or give thanks to Him. So disobedience to what we know to be right, this becomes the determining factor whether we are under God's judgment or not. Obedience, then, is the measure of whether we love Christ or not. It's not what we say, but it's what we do. John 14, 23, Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Now, because sin is not caused by what we don't know, sin can't be fixed by what we know. Sin is not fixed by knowing the law or affirming a set of beliefs. You know, Paul makes the point, Gentiles can escape judgment even though they do not know the law, even though they haven't been given the law. Jews would not escape judgment even though they did have the law. So, Paul is pointing out, it's not God's law that was intended to change the heart. The law only revealed the heart. You know, in the, in the Old Testament, they recognize this as well with the continual talk by the prophets that at some point the requirements of the law would be written on our hearts where it wasn't some outside force that compelled us, but it was an inward love for God that compelled us. Now, God's law is an inherent part of our universe. It's woven into the very fabric of the universe. In our inmost beings, we have a conscience that directs us toward what God wants, that lets us know when we are in line with God's will by either accusing or defending us. Now, God gives us this as an act of His mercy, as an act of His kindness, and it's not foolproof. You know, we can do a lot to to sear our consciousness, as God says. We can do a lot to make our conscience stop reminding us when we ignore it and ignore it and ignore it. But God gave us a, a, a spirit within us to let us know when we are obeying and when we are disobeying. And all of us, at some point, will face a final judgment based upon what is hidden in our heart, based upon whether we are obeying what we know to be true. Now, all of this has important uh, consequences uh, especially for us in the church. Do we truly value the gospel? Are we letting ourselves be transformed by the gospel? Or have we gotten this idea because I've accepted Christ as my Savior, because I've gone down the list, I've, met, I've checked the right boxes, uh, that this somehow makes me right with God and I'm free to go my own way? Yes, I'm doing some things I know I shouldn't be doing. I'm not really doing everything I know to do. But God somehow is going to, to excuse all of this. When we do this, 
it, it destroys uh, both ourselves and destroys the impact, the witness of the church. Dr. Henry Blackaby writes, Our gospel is canceled by the way we live. When we point the finger at others, when we recognize their unrighteousness, but we will not recognize the unrighteousness in ourselves, we devalue the gospel, we cheapen it, taking away its impact. We, we devalue the gospel for ourselves because we fail to realize the full transforming effect of the gospel. When we think of the gospel as a, a, a get-out-of-jail-free card, basically we are shortchanging it. The gospel becomes about accepting Christ as our Savior, but that's it. But Paul describes what the impact of the full gospel should be. Philippians 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul writes to them, So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Now, we also devalue the gospel for those around us. We don't make the impact on our world that we should because we are failing to present a gospel that makes a real difference. Uh, back in 1990, 31 years ago, George Barna reported that six out of ten Americans felt that the church was irrelevant to society. Now, I don't think that situation has gotten any better over the last few decades. And so we have to ask ourselves, why is the church being written off? And part of it is we are failing to value the full gospel of God. You know, this was Paul's message to the Romans. He was telling them the gospel is something that not only saves you, not only protects you in the future, but it's something that transforms your life into a life of holiness, a life of becoming like Christ, uh, of becoming the image of God himself. And this is something that's so great, that, that such wonderful news, I'm willing to give up my entire life for it. I'm willing to be beaten and to be stoned and to be shipwrecked and to go hungry and to be cold and to suffer all of these things because I know that what I'm telling people has the capacity to transform their lives. So the question we ask ourselves, do we really value this gospel? Or does somehow we feel like, well, we don't really need the gospel because we're basically good people? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word that we've received today. We thank you for the gospel, for this good news that in Jesus Christ, our sins can be forgiven. And more than that, we can be transformed. We can be made holy. We can become like you. We can be made in the image of God, become truly Christ-like. And this has a transforming effect on our lives. Lord, help us not to settle for anything less, but to value the full gospel. And we'll give you the praise in your name. Amen.